This podcast is brought to you by the Dunfield Retirement Residence, a casually elegant retirement community located at Young and Eglinton in the heart of Midtown Toronto. Customized living options complement your independent, active lifestyle. Learn more at thedunfield.com. watch Orange is the New Black, the Netflix show about women prisoners? Well, that's the theme song, and the series ran for seven seasons. Phyllis Taylor made sure to watch the show religiously when she began volunteering in some of Southern Ontario's correctional institutions 10 years ago. The Toronto woman has taught life skills, including anger management, to hundreds, maybe thousands of Canadian prisoners. And that includes drug dealers and addicts and prostitutes, and even some Jewish ones. She also encountered some convicts who she didn't want to help. And despite the potential danger and risks to her physical safety when she taught, Taylor discovered a way to make a difference, combining her training as a teacher and motivational speaker with her own techniques of showering her students with kindness. Now she's sharing her experiences in a new book. It's called The Prison Lady, which is what the inmates called her during her weekly sessions. And one of the men said to me one day, and I have to tell you, it's probably true. He said, you know, I went to make a point. And he said, you know, Phyllis, we know you would crawl across this floor if you thought you could make a point with any one of us. And that was what it was. I'm Ellen Bessner, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like for Thursday, December the 15th, 2022. Welcome to the CJN Daily, a podcast of the Canadian Jewish News, sponsored by Metropia. Phyllis Taylor credits Oprah Winfrey with sending her to prison, no pun intended. After 30 years of working as a trainer at a Toronto law firm, Taylor was let go. She wasn't ready to retire. She was in her early 60s. She went with some friends to hear Oprah Winfrey speak in April of 2012. And part of that show included hearing from six female prisoners. Taylor was inspired and she hasn't looked back. She's worked in five prisons. When COVID hit, her courses were cancelled for health reasons, and so she spent the past two years writing her book. It's partly about her own journey, too, with two divorces, job loss, and being a survivor of child abuse growing up in a Jewish post-war Toronto home. Phyllis Taylor joins me now. Thank you, Ellen, and thank you for having me. I am delighted to be here with you today. Well, it's great to meet you. Congratulations on the new book, The Prison Lady. How has the reception been so far? Overwhelming. It has been well received both at my book launch and by uh, other readers. These are real people. You use their real names, correct? And how did that work? How did you navigate that? When it came to mentioning prisoners or Dina Devine, who is the gal who I reported to at the prison, the educational director, oh no, I changed their names and I changed enough detail that it would not be identifiable. But the stories, of course, are all true. But sometimes I had to protect people. You spoke to the people who you were going to write about and told them they were going to be in, or you just let them know afterwards? The ones who I'm still in contact with, okay, keeping in mind that I'm not supposed to be in contact with anyone, so we won't tell anybody, uh, but the ones (laughs) who I have been in contact with were... I spoke about it before I wrote it. I wrote it. I sent it to them. Um, There's one particular guy, chapter one, who I talk about 
uh, had to go for cleanup to Homewood. He was su yeah, suicidal on a Saturday night when I was eating my Panzer's Knish. And uh, I certainly sent that chapter to him for approval, but not everybody could I obtain approval from because though many of the stories in there were people that I'm no longer in touch with. Let's talk a bit about why you decided this needed to be a book. I've been working in the prison system for a decade. And as such, every day I would come home with a different story. Whether I was telling my partner, I was telling my kids, or I was telling my friends, everybody was frankly on the edge of their seats waiting to hear what the outcome was, what I said, what they said, and, and interested in it. So I was told to write the book, but moreover, there were so many stories that started mounting up over the years that had lessons that could help others, that could help me, that could be, and I hope and pray are, a legacy for my, my grandchildren. Most people have ideas about prison that it's the TV show or the Netflix show, I guess, Orange is a New Black. Had you watched it before you started your uh, work? And, and if so, how different is reality from that show? So I have watched Orange is the New Black, and I think that I watched it while I was already in the prison system. So I had my experience before, during, and after. And I also watched Wentworth, which is a much tougher prison uh, series. But nevertheless, if you're into that stuff, it's a, it's a good watch. The stories in Orange are the new, is the New Black. Now, remember, that's women. I've worked with both women and men, but I'm going to speak about women. Every story that was in that series is true and could happen, and many of them I dealt with in the prison system. However, the difference is how Orange is the New Black might have three of these things going on within an hour. It might occur once a month or once every few months where you get one of these monumental type of stories. So I would have to be there many years to collect all the stories that, that they had in that series. Wentworth is um, a really rough, tough prison. I would compare it more to the experiences I had at Maplehurst, which is the men's prison. I would say that that is very realistic. And I'll tell you one big difference. In Orange is the New Black, they had a gal by the name of, people who've watched the series will remember her. Her nickname was Red. And she was the supervisor of the food. And uh, that would never happen. They would never have an inmate overseeing the, the making of food because there would be way too much poisoning going on. So therefore, there's a real person in there, <laughs> not, not an inmate. Had you ever been in a prison before or a jail before in your life? No, it was one of my, my on my to-do list. It was on my bucket list. It was something that I wanted to do. I have always, always had an interest in marginalized people. I wanted to do something for them. I wanted to hug them. But part two of your question, what surprised me when I went in there? The thing that surprised me the most was the way that the prisoners treated me. I thought, yeah, I can go in there and do my job. I can go in there and write something. I can deliver a lesson and I can speak. But how are they going to perceive me? How am I going to connect with them? Am I going to get opposition? Am I going to get a heckler? I, I had no idea what to expect. And at one time, my audience was at its peak, 100 men in it every single week. So I felt gratitude. It was rewarding. I felt like I had arrived home where I was meant to be. It was just such a fit for me. From the moment I stepped inside the prison and passed the control gate, 
I thought to myself, oh my God, this is making my dream a reality. It's a dream come true. And it just got better and better as I got to know them, got to love them. They loved me. The connection was palpable. And that's what I experienced. The women were tougher. The men were more respectful. Were any of the people who you came into contact with, uh, did they have any difficulty because you were Jewish? Wow, I love your question. So I have to say that as a proud Jewish person, with a lot of variation on who I am and the journey that I've had, I made a point of telling them that I was Jewish. Now, I would have the same prisoners, you know, week after week after week, but every once in a while, perhaps every few months, I would not stand up and say, hey, I'm Phyllis and I'm Jewish, but I would put into my presentation somehow that I was Jewish. Why did I do that? Because of anti-Semitism, because of the way that some people perceive or feel about or have had experiences with Jewish people, and because I knew that they loved me, I wanted to make sure that they knew that whatever experiences they had had out there, that this gal, this Jewish gal, was their good experience. And so I made a point of telling them I was Jewish. I had have received zero anti-Semitism, zero critique, zero anything except love, respect, and gratitude. I did come across a couple of Jewish prisoners. I hope nobody's fainting, but those experiences were beautiful because when they realized I was Jewish, it was like home for them. And so they would come up and tell me how they ordered Jewish kosher meals and they would want to connect with me. They'd want to tell me some, one of the prisoners wanted to tell me about his booby. And the funny thing is that this particular guy bumped into me in the promenade mall. I was sitting with my girlfriends. We're having our coffee clutch and someone comes up from behind me, puts their hands over my eyes. I wasn't, I wasn't frightful. I was in the promenade mall. And I said, oh, my God, who's this? And he said, it's your Monday guy. And everybody stopped dead. <laughs> the choice of words, eh? Because everybody knows where I was going on Monday. My piece was called Motivational Mondays. Anyways, he had to say hello. He was a young Jewish boy, a university grad who got himself into trouble with drug dealing. And uh, we had a beautiful connection. And he had spotted me from behind. It must have been my hair. <laughs> you know, you mentioned friends, but we need to talk about one point, which I'm sure you're asked all the time. And that is, there are people that you came across who did such heinous things that you could not forgive them or didn't want to deal with them or think that they were not fixable. Yeah, I'll take a deep breath if you don't mind. So there are those people. And of course, I came across them. To, they're either uh, serial rapists or pedophiles. Uh, those two categories are really tough to deal with. I've spoken about it in my book. Uh, one chapter is devoted to uh, Josh, who was a serial rapist. And I'm not going to give away the farm, but I am going to say that we worked well together. And I believe in my heart that we move the needle. I also dealt with another man and uh, that dealt with um, pedophilia and a family member. And I almost thought I was going to be sick when he told me his story, matter of factly told me his story. And I thought, and I thought, I didn't blink and kind of, you know, have good experience with not emoting in the, in the way that you might expect. But um I decided as he was telling me the story that I wasn't going to necessarily help him. But what I was going to do 
was I was going to help his family. He had confided in me that he had spoken to a social worker and several of the inmates and everyone was giving him the same answer. But when I gave him the answer, he trusted me because he was told that I was fair. And I gave him an answer that would benefit his family. And that's the approach I decided I would take with him. I just know that I'm human like everyone else. And although I am the prison lady, and although I fell in love with so many of the people that I worked with, it's something about my DNA and the way that I'm wired. I actually attribute that a lot to the parenting I had because it was abusive. And I think that I found very early in life, I had... uh... In your book, you reveal that you were put in a sort of isolation room in your basement when you were a teenager for baking curfew and going and dancing in clubs and things, and that this helped you find some kind of connection with people who are in solitary confinement or in actual cells in prison. So my background is uh, two parents who married late in life. My father was Orthodox and my mother was Reformed. And of course, like any other couple who meet late in life, they're going to make it work. The problem is that Both of them thought they would change the other, and neither of them were successful. So our house was tumultuous. My father was angry. My father was abusive. I was the scapegoat child. My brother says, well, he could run faster. The incident you're referring to is uh, my parents caught me sneaking out the bedroom window, as in not to attend clubs, Ellen, But I was a go-go dancer. So I was actually working in the club as a go-go dancer. And when I attempted to sneak back in the window, I love this particular story. My father locked me up and put me in isolation for a year. So barbed wire on the windows. I wasn't crawling out the the window any longer and uh, boarded up the entire basement with black, black boards. That was my isolation, and that was my only testament to having been isolated. I never shared that story with the prisoners. There was really no reason to. It perhaps gave me an insight and an empathy for what it's like to be in solitary confinement because I worked with the women in solitary confinement at one point. Uh, That was my second shift on Tuesdays. Uh, In the evening, I worked with women who were murderers and such, but sure that I would be any different with or without having had that experience because empathy is my thing. And I can tell you that I know what it's like to be locked up and the loneliness of that. But I don't really think in all honesty that compares to what they go through. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. When you read the book, I felt that it was a cry for somebody in wider community. It's not just for these particular prisons that you were have experience with, but the whole prison system to be re-examined in how it funds and treats people with mental illness, social poverty, and addictions. That's part of the reason that they got in there in the first place. And you're saying that, uh, what do you want done? What can be fixed, in your opinion? What should be done? What does the prison do right? Well, the prison takes dangerous offenders such as murderers and rapists and and, and real hardcore drug dealers, takes them off the street and puts them in prison. And some of whom are not necessarily rehab ready or, or, or if ever. But there are so many in the prison population. The largest part of the prison population is men and women who have been bruised and abused from the womb, 
from the womb. And had they been given a chance, a bit of respect, a modicum of a lesson or teaching or a person who cared, they would have a different outcome. I believe this in my heart and I have seen evidence of it in my work. I believe that the prison system takes people and throws them into jail and because of funding and a lack of funding, this is not that I'm pointing a finger or blaming anyone in particular, but because of a lack of funding, we are not getting what these prisoners desperately need, rehab. The rehab in there is run by volunteers. There's a couple of AA meetings. There's CA meetings, which is alcoholics, cocaine, drugs anonymous, gamblers anonymous. There's a program called SORP, which is the sex offender program registry. But there's not people who are doing this with a lot of heart and a lot of understanding and some respect, just some respect for these people to say, you can do this. You can go down another path. You can rehabilitate. But some of them that I worked with that I grew to love and care about, they did make a change. And there's evidence of that in in the resulting uh, ending in my book, where I was able to catch up with a couple of prisoners and find out where they were at. But you said that the lack of treatment and proper medication for mentally ill prisoners, you called it shameful. In my understanding, in my knowledge is they go in, they're taken off all street drugs, they're taken off all all, uh, legal drugs, they're detoxed, and then they try to give them the generic lithium for bipolar, which is uh, a medical drug, but it isn't necessarily their cocktail. It isn't tailored to them. So what happens is sometimes in prisons they they wig out because they are not properly medicated or they go off their medication altogether or they save their medication because it's good for suicide. If they save up enough pills, they can off themselves. Did you see that? I do know about that. And not only do I know about that, but and have had experience and stories that uh, where that has been the case, sadly. But I also was working very closely, you may recall, with a heroin addict. I was trying to work with him for harm reduction because if, you, if you're addicted to heroin and you go on to, to um, marijuana, that's considered harm reduction. It didn't have a happy ending. Two quick questions before we end because we could go on for it. It's fascinating. Do they all wear orange? No. In the women's prison, they were wearing green. Yeah, men's prison, they're wearing orange. But it's not all orange. It's not an orange jumpsuit necessarily. They could be wearing track pants that are gray, but an orange, either a sweatshirt in the winter or a T-shirt in the summer. And then uh, the other question is, did you get paid at all for this work in 10 years? No, I didn't get paid. In fact, I had tried to apply because I did a little bit of research and found out that I was gas eligible. And um, the prison lady who I refer to as Dina Devine said, I'll look into it, I'll look into it, and it just never happened. And, you know, it was a pricey thing because I was doing about three shifts a week in the prison. And uh, if you know from my book, after 30 years of working at an international law firm, I was terminated. And so uh, I I decided to put this ahead of money. And uh, I still do put everything ahead of money. We put a link to find out more about Phyllis's book in our show notes. And that's what Jewish Canada sounds like for this episode of the CJN Daily, sponsored by Metropia. Integrity, community, quality, and customer care. 
Today's listener shout-out goes to Mickey Nachmani of Toronto. She really liked the podcast we did with Anita Neville, the new lieutenant governor in Manitoba. Don't forget to read the story on our website about a criminal charge being withdrawn against Sarel. That's the program where Canadian seniors spend a few weeks in Israel volunteering on army bases. And we hope to see you all at Thursday's CJN magazine launch and Hanukkah party at the Toronto Prosterman JCC. Doors open at 7. The show starts at 7.30. Come and be part of the studio audience. We'll tape our show and Bonjour Chai too. You've got to RSVP to me to get in. If you can't make it, we'll be posting the videos at a later date. Happy Hanukkah from everyone here at the CJN Daily and thanks for listening. The Dunfield Retirement Residence offers customized living options to complement your independent, active lifestyle. Welcome home. Welcome to the Dunfield. Visit us at thedunfield.com to book a personal tour.